0: Talking books on New South 106 to 108. Think about everything that changes when you're a transgender person. There is nothing in your life that doesn't change. And yet what Ben Barris said is perhaps the single greatest difference after his transition was that he got more respect. He got automatic respect, which is something he had never experienced before in his life. Um, the other scientist that you mentioned, Joan Ruffgarden, who transitioned the other way. Joan Ruffgarden was born as Jonathan and transitioned also mid-career. Um, and what she said is after her transition, the biggest difference was she was she's a mathematician, and she said the biggest difference for her was that suddenly... If she pushed back against um, another mathematician, if she questioned a, um, a concept or a, or, or a solution, suddenly um, people would push back against her and say she doesn't understand the math, something that never happened to her earlier as a man. So, so I think that the, looking at the eyes through people who have experienced both the male and female, how the world perceived men and women has been absolutely fascinating.
1: The best way to understand the respect gap is to understand those who have experienced both sides of it. The candid and straight up words of American journalist, writer and editor Joanne Lipman from her latest book, Win Win, when business works for women, it works for everyone. Hello, how are you? And you're very welcome to Talking Books. I'm Susan Cahill. It's lovely to have your company this evening. Are women treated differently to men in corporate environments? What exactly is bro-culture? And how do we overcome unconscious bias in the workplace? Well, on tonight's show, we're going to tackle those questions with American journalist, writer and editor Joanne Lipman, whose latest book, Win Win, has just been published by John Murray, where Joanne argues, Some 75% of men and 80% of women unconsciously equate men with work and women with family. Joanne goes on to state, research has shown that women's views are discounted until they make up almost a third of any given group. So how do we close the gender gap and get respect and equality for all?
0: Uh, Hi, my name's Joanne Littman. I'm the author of Win Win my latest book, which is about how do we close the gender gap and look specifically at bringing men into the conversation about closing Mm -hmm. the gap. I most recently uh, was the editor-in-chief of USA Today and also chief content officer of the parent company of USA Today, uh, Gannett. And in in that role, I was overseeing 110 newspapers and more than 3,000 journalists. I'm also a veteran of the Wall Street Journal and of the magazine company Condé Nast.
1: Really well done on the book. Win-win, Joanne. I have to say it was a very revealing read, very challenging in parts and um, quite frustrating in other parts, looking at some of the parity issues that we have in um, society today. I might throw you a big wide open question to kick things off and show sure we can uh, take it from there. When I say the word power, what does that mean to you and what comes into your head?
0: You know, power, the, the issue that we have with power is that it is distributed so unequally in society. And unfortunately, because men have the vast, vast majority of the power in the workplace, um, and financially, uh, other groups, you know, white men have that power. So other groups, women, underrepresented minorities, um, don't have that power. And as a result of that imbalance, we see a whole slew of issues. One of the problems that we have is that men, uh, who I write this book for, really, very often even aren't aware of the power imbalances because they don't experience, experience those imbalances. So, for example, the, the reason that I wrote Win-Win uh, was because of that very um, dynamic. So I spent the first two decades of my career at the Wall Street Journal, a financial newspaper, and I worked primarily with men. And We wrote primarily for men. I was surrounded by male colleagues. All of my mentors were men, and they were really, really great guys. But at the same time, when I would get together with female friends, female colleagues, we all talked about the issues that we faced at work, issues like feeling overlooked, um, marginalized, underpaid, just not given the same level of respect as the man sitting next to us. And what I realized is that women talk amongst ourselves all the time about these issues, but what we were not doing is talking to men. And in my view, women talking to each other is half a conversation. And at best, it's going to solve half the problem. And we really do need men to join us. So the reason I wrote Win-Win is to, uh, to, for men and women so that men can see, here's the issues that we do face because a lot of men are not aware of what they are. And by the way, here are some solutions. And for the book, I spent three years crisscrossing both the United States and around the world, seeking out men who were primarily men in leadership positions, men who had the power. Seeking them out, who those who were trying to close the gender gap. And then I would talk with them about, tell me what you've done, what you've seen, um, you know, roadblocks you've run into, and strategies that you have adopted or, or um, created to help close the gap. And that's those are the stories that I tell in Win Win. Um, and those are the strategies that we come away with. There's, there's really actionable strategies. In fact, there's a cheat sheet at the end of the book of a dozen things you can do right now to help close the gender gap.
1: I'm just wondering, Joanne, how do you explain why men haven't been part of the conversation for so long? How do you explain that?
0: You know, the reason men haven't been part of it is Largely the power dynamic. First of all, they don't see it in many cases. Catalyst, uh, which is a nonprofit that looks at working women, did this very interesting research a couple of years ago where they surveyed executive men and they asked the question, why, uh, you know, what would be a reason why you would not support gender equality at work? And 51% of the men responded, lack of awareness. They simply didn't know what the issues are. And 74% of the men responded fear. And that was both fear of loss of status and fear that they would say something wrong. And that I think is a huge issue. And many women have seen this. If you're ever in a mixed gender conversation and the topic comes up of women, equality, workplace issues, any of those sorts of things that women talk about all the time very comfortably amongst themselves. If there's a man in the room, he will shut down. He'll wander away. Um, It's a very uncomfortable conversation for him. And so the purpose of Win-Win is, like, let's take the awkwardness out of it. Let's open his eyes. Let's show him in a way, uh, you know, I say in the very top of the book, I say there's no man bashing in this book. Because the point isn't to, you know, to, to say to men, hey, this is all your fault. The point is to say, well, this is a problem for all of us, men as well as women. And we really need to work together to close the gap.
1: And that's very, uh, very clear from how you've written the book, Joanne, from the get go, I think is one of the best introductions I read to any nonfiction book in quite a long time. It's incredibly inclusive, but I suppose we have to find a, w- a way for it to all work together. You cite in your introductions a very startling survey, I think it was from the um, World Economic Forum, who have made a prediction that it will take at least about 170 years to bridge the, um, the pay gap between men and women. I'm just wondering, that seems so far away. How do we work towards that?
0: And not only is that number staggering, but the World Economic Forum very recently came out with its updated figure, and that gap is growing. The latest number is 217 years. So, and this is a worldwide issue, right? We see this in every country. Uh, I do think there are ways that Um, We can help to close the gap. I talk about a number of them in the book. Um, And I also, you know, looked at a number of countries that are attempting to address this because, you know, part of it is individual action, but it's going to take as well. It's going to take legislation. It's going to take um, pressure from a variety of different sectors. Right. So, for example, in the U.K., um, the law, I'm sure you're familiar with it, that just went into effect where companies have to publish their gender wage gap. Uh, One of the companies I spoke with in Win-Win is a consulting firm, PricewaterhouseCoopers, PwC. They, in advance of the U.K. law, decided they wanted to get ahead of it and start publishing their wage gap earlier. So for the last couple of years, they've been publishing their gap. And what they said to me was that even though internally they kind of knew what the gap was, but they said publishing that number, putting it out in public was so motivating because it's embarrassing. There's no reason for it. And it also, they said, really um, motivated them to drill down into exactly why that gap was happening. And exactly where, at what point in people's careers uh, was the gap happening. And and so it w- they've actually taken uh, a very aggressive steps to fix it. Um, and I'll give you a for instance. One of the things they learned was that at the level just below partnership, that if someone was passed over for partner, if it was a woman, the woman would internalize it and say, oh, geez, I'm not good enough. And for the next year, she would put her head down and she would work harder. If a man was passed over for partnership, the man would get angry and he'd say, you're wrong. I should have been a partner. And you know, I may just leave. And so the men were getting retention bonuses. So at that level, there was a huge disparity for the people passed over for partnership. The men were getting paid more for it and the women were not. So uh, they, they, you know, having realized that they were able to, to say, OK, we need to adjust this and figure out a way to make this more equitable. Mm-hmm. And I think that will be true, that the, the gender wage gap figures coming out of the UK right now are horrifying, particularly in areas like finance and communications. Um, and also in Iceland, they also have a law now where you have to pay men and women equally. And I think that comp- combined with the sort of the social understanding um, and social pressure will help to close the gap. And hopefully we can close it before 217 years is up.
1: You highlight that when professional men get angry or frustrated in the workplace, that, uh, you know, is they, they get more respect in ways. But when women get angry or frustrated, that um, it can be very damaging for their careers.
0: That's right. Emotion in the workplace is one of the trickiest pieces here. Um, First of all, there's a, there's a real misperception between men and women. Uh, and some of it is unconscious bias. Unconscious bias are these, it's these prejudices that every one of us has in, that, that are buried so deep inside that we don't even realize they exist. And men have them as well as women. Um, and, in fact, you can you can test your own unconscious bias. There's a, a website called projectimplicit.net. Uh there's a test you can take, there's there for different groups, and there's one that's for women and work. I took that test. And even I came out as moderately biased against working women. So you see that we all have this sort of buried very deeply inside of us. But one of the really major disconnects is when it comes to emotion and the role of emotion, particularly in the workplace. So Anger is uh, one way in which when men are angry, they're seen as justified. When women are angry, they are seen as irrational and emotional. And that even shows there was a really interesting study done um, of uh, juries. Uh, And there was a real life murder case. And uh, researchers asked individuals to come in and play the role of a juror. What the individuals, the participants in the study didn't know was that the other jurors who they were communicating with via computer, one of those jurors was actually a computer creation who was programmed to be an angry holdout. And the researchers found that if that angry holdout was a man, he would start convincing the other jurors to change their minds because they said, oh, he's angry and he, you know, he must be justified. And so he must Really know something, so maybe we should listen to him. But if the angry holdout was a woman, the other jurors would dig in their heels in their original position and they would dismiss her as being irrational and emotional. And we see this, by the way, in um, studies of performance reviews where women are overwhelmingly uh, given critiques that mention personality traits. Uh, There was one study that I saw where. Every one of the women was given a critique uh, at some point in the review about a personality trait, and the most frequently used word was abrasive, whereas of the men, only two out of more than 100 men um, in this in this survey of performance reviews, only two uh, were given similar kinds of personality critiques. The vast majority of men instead were given... Assessments that were based purely on their job responsibilities and on the metrics of how did they achieve and what could they do to further their careers. So, even the way that men and women are talked to was differently. One other thing I want to mention that was fascinating to me had to do with women crying. So, women actually, um, I've not seen a lot of this in my own career. I've got a long career, I have very, very rarely seen. Women cry at work. I'm not sure if I ever cried at work, um, but women are programmed to cry more frequently than men, just biologically. But here's the thing: when women do cry at work, the men freak out. And I, in fact, when I when I spoke with executive men, one of the first questions I would ask them is, "Tell me what flummoxes or perplexes you about your female colleagues," and the overwhelming um, answer that I would get from men was, I'm afraid she'll cry. And at first, I really didn't understand that. Like, why in the world would you be afraid she'd cry? But it turns out that when women cry, um, first of all, the men misinterpret it. They think she's crying because they have hurt her feelings. But it turns out, and research has proven this, that when women cry at work, it's not because their feelings are hurt. It's because they're really angry. They're frustrated, they're mad, it's exactly the same thing as when a man yells at work, but the men misinterpret it.
1: It's also interesting. I know that you, you you quote some research saying that 79% of male supervisors reported being uh, quite worried and concerned when they're giving candid feedback to female um, um, employees. And um, it's also interesting because they feel that, you know, if they talk to a man, they can be very candid. But if they talk to a woman, that they have to be even more discreet or possibly indirect, or they may actually need some form of professional guidance, whether it's to motivate or to kind of... Uh, talk around difficult issues with women it's such a minefield isn't it
0: it sure it sure is and that's uh, that statistic that you cite is very important the 79 percent of men said they're afraid to give candid feedback to women what that means is because the men have um, the power that the women are not getting feedback that they need in order to progress at work whereas men are getting it so By treating men and women differently, the women are now at a disadvantage. And and I should add that the research in Win-Win is, um, and the focus on Win-Win is about women. But I want to make a point here because so much of the research that I cite uh, has to do not just with women, but with any group that is underrepresented. Um, And uh, not only that, but women who belong to more than one underrepresented group Uh, suffer what's called a double bind or a triple bind. So a black woman or a Hispanic woman, a disabled woman, LGBTQ, um, anyone who belongs to sort of more than one of those groups, uh, you you can look at it in the wage. The wage gap is larger. The opportunity gap is larger. Uh, So these women face um, an additional burden.
1: I found your research into the uh, transgender world incredibly interesting and it also makes for a very compelling argument. Um, you met with a gentleman called, I think his name was Jonathan Ruffgarden, who transitioned and became uh, Joan. And he said she is something very, uh, very interesting. He said men are assumed to be competent until proven otherwise. And all the way through the book, whether it's doctors, lawyers, whatever it is, high ranking professionals, um, you have a very strong argument and research to back up that you know if it's a man it's they're always seen as um doing the right thing but a woman there's always questions around it and whether they're competent or not but there was another uh, person that you met with um ben barnes a stanford biologist you might tell me his story
0: that was an amazing story so ben barris is a very 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 well-known scientist at stanford university ben barris was born as barbara barris and barbara barris was this brilliant student um, who, uh, despite being the you know an absolutely standout student, even in high school, her guidance counselor suggested she just go to the local college. She wanted to go to MIT, which she did. She gets to MIT. There was a class where uh, there was a problem set that no one was able to solve except for Barbara Barris. The professor accused her of cheating and having her boyfriend actually be the one to solve the problem. So fast forward you know, a few decades, Barbara Barris became a renowned scientist. She had a spectacular career. In mid-career, she transitioned to Ben, Ben Barris. Ben Barris, um, in, after his transition, he gave a paper at a major scientific conference. And in the audience, one scientist, turned to another scientist and said, wow, that Ben Barris, he is so much smarter than his sister, Barbara. So you see, what's so astonishing to me is what Ben Barris said is, think about everything that changes when you're a transgender person. There is nothing in your life that doesn't change. And yet what Ben Barris said is perhaps the single greatest difference after his transition was that he got more respect. He got automatic respect, which is something he had never experienced before in his life. Um, the other scientist that you mentioned, Joan Ruffgarden, who transitioned the other way. Joan Ruffgarden was born as Jonathan and transitioned also mid-career. Um, and what she said is after her transition, the biggest difference was she was she's a mathematician, and she said the biggest difference for her was that suddenly if she pushed back against um, a, a, a another mathematician, if she questioned a, um, a concept or a solution, suddenly um, people would push back against her and say she doesn't understand the math, something that never happened to her earlier as a man. So, so I think that the, looking at the eyes through people who have experienced both the male and female, how the world perceives men and women has been absolutely fascinating and and really confirms all of the pieces of research.
1: You also bring up uh, the bias against medical consultants and you have a very funny story about um, an orthopedic surgeon who was advised you know when she was uh, starting out in her career to forget it because basically her patients wouldn't think she would be up to the challenge because you know she's a woman she physically wouldn't be up for it. It's crazy to think that isn't it?
0: Crazy, But it happens and it happens all the time. And the other thing that happens to female physicians is, you know, they're very often mistaken for nurses. And as the female physicians I spoke to said, look, we have great respect for nurses, but we went to medical school. Right. They they, several of them told me stories about um, how they were the senior physician in a room and had were in a teaching hospital and um, walked into a room as the senior physician to see a patient, and the patient said, I don't want to talk to you, I want to talk to the real doctor, pointing to the male medical student who was following them. The other thing that happens to physicians is that female physicians are um, frequently, if not overwhelmingly, introduced by their first names, whereas male physicians are overwhelmingly introduced with the honorific doctor so-and-so. Um, And as I said, you know, so much of this comes back to this unconscious bias. It's not that people are out there saying, you know, I want to keep women down, right We're, we're past that in, in the vast majority of cases, but we still harbor these unconscious biases that men are worth more than women. And by the way, that starts so, so early in life. I think that was some of the most interesting research that I came across was these instances of unconscious bias uh, starting in childhood. Um, So, for example, mothers of infants. And uh, what researchers have found is that mothers routinely overestimate the crawling ability of their sons, but they underestimate the crawling ability of their daughters. And then when these kids are two years old, parents who type into Google, is my child a genius? They are more than twice as likely to type that in about a boy two-year-old as a girl two-year-old. Then these kids get into school and they face the same sorts of unconscious bias from their teachers. So there was a very, very interesting study done of elementary school children who were given a math test and um, then their names were taken off the test. The tests were graded by their teachers and the girls outscored the boys in math. Then their names were put back on their papers. They were graded by their teachers. And this time with their names on the papers, the boys outscored the girls. Now, this is particularly fascinating because it's math and math should be black and white. And how could this be? Well, it turns out that the teachers themselves have this unconscious bias um, that, you know, boys are better at math than girls are. So, I document in Win-Win these sort of subtle unconscious inequities that follow us all the way up through childhood and at home and in school so that by the time you get into college, a female college student needs to have an A average in order to be seen as the equivalent, the equal of a male student with a B average. What, what all of this means is by the time we even reach the workplace, we have already baked into us. That boys are better, more valuable than girls are. We've internalized it. Boys have as well as girls have, and that uh, that directly directly translates into the pay gap. Um, and one of this, the, another really really interesting piece of uh, research on kids, is to say something about that pay gap. This this was actually probably my favorite study that I cited in Win Win. Had to do with six year olds and Hershey kisses. So these six-year-olds were asked to do a task and then to set their own pay in Hershey Kisses. At six years old, the boys pay themselves more Hershey Kisses than the girls do. That experiment is repeated as they're in middle school and high school as they get older, and they repeat the experiment with money. And at every age group, the boys pay themselves more than the girls by as much as 78%. So again, by the time we reach adulthood, we have this internalized that girls are worth less than boys. And that in turn manifests itself in that the contributions of these now grown women, their contributions are valued less than those of men. And we see this play out in a hundred different ways every single day. Just as one example, women are interrupted three times more frequently than men are. So uh, in a meeting, in a group setting, in life, um, women have experienced this. Most women, like I always have, most women assume it's just them. But it turns out it's not. It's all women. In fact, Northwestern University studied the Supreme Court of the United States and found that the female Supreme Court justices are interrupted three times more frequently than the male Supreme Court justices. So it affects all of us. The other way that you, you know, one of the many, many, many other ways that you see this um, manifested is in a meeting, if women make up uh, less than a majority, um, their voices really aren't heard. And I think so many women have had this experience where you say something in a meeting, you think it's, you know, you said something intelligent. um, Nobody seems to hear it. And then two minutes later, a man repeats exactly the same thing. And then suddenly everybody turns to him and says, Hey, Dave, great idea you had, Dave. And he gets the credit.
1: But Joanne, women are part of that whole cultural fabric or system and they are possibly part of the problem and also part of the solution. So do you know what I mean? Like we're all operating different types of hidden biases. It could be cultural stuff, it could be class stuff, it could be money stuff, it could be education stuff, as well as the whole gender um, explosive dynamic, if you will. So do you know what I mean? Um, Surely we um, are all responsible in this. You know, you talked earlier about bringing men into the conversation. But maybe we have to bring women also into this conversation because it's women who are participating in this system. Yes,
0: absolutely. So to to close that gap, we need men and women, and women um, already are highly aware of so many of these issues and are trying to work on them. But women reaching out toward men, leaning in, uh, as it were, toward men. Again, we're we're already doing that. We need men to lean right back to us. We really need both sides working to understand the other. And the beauty of it, Win-Win is the men who I found are trying to do exactly that. The men who I spoke with in this book are saying, okay, I understand that this is going on, that women are trying. I need to try too. And I need to change some of the ways that I perceive things. So, uh, so we've got some wonderful examples of guys who've come up with great strategies. Uh, what, on the interruptions front, for example, uh, I talk about a very famous, uh, television producer um, who uh, who ran what you would call a writer's room, right? And to, to create a television show, he, he created uh, The Walking Dead and a, and a show called The Shield that was very popular here in the United States. And in the writer's room, there's usually like a dozen people or so sitting around a table and they're pitching ideas uh, for the television series. And he Most of these writers are men. Um, Two-thirds of, more than two-thirds of Hollywood writers are men. And he only had two women in his writer's room, and they were not succeeding. And it was very frustrating to him because he wanted their input. He wanted, he was paying them. He wanted them to contribute. Uh, And he said, it finally struck him that every time these women started to pitch an idea, their male colleagues cut them off. And they never got their ideas out. And so what he did is he created a new rule, no interruption. Whoever's pitching an idea gets to finish. And as he said, after they're finished, you can tear them apart. You can make them cry. I don't care. But you must let them finish. And it transformed the writer's room. The women's ideas got through. And by the way, it made his shows better, which is a very important point. Because the reason that the men I spoke to who have the power are reaching toward the women to make their uh, organizations more inclusive is because it makes them more successful. And every piece of research shows you that when you have more diversity in leadership, when you have more women in leadership, your companies are simply whatever organization you're in, it's more successful. uh, If you add women to single sex groups, it makes them smarter and more creative and they come up with better solutions. So this really is a business imperative. It's not just, it would be nice if we all said, well, this is the right thing to do, so we should do it. But it's more than that. It is the necessary thing to do. It's the business imperative.
1: Can you describe Davos? Because following on from what I read in your research, it seems like not many women get to go there.
0: Yes, there's so many of these groups uh, around the world where, uh, because it's the men in power, the, 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 and then men who are in power when they're looking to promote others, People tend to gravitate toward others like themselves. So, you have a system where men traditionally have had the power roles, and that when they're looking for, when they want to mentor people, when they're looking for people to bring up in their own organizations, they really gravitate toward others like themselves, which is why you've got men bringing in other men. And that is so visible when you go to Davos. So, Davos is the annual meeting of the World Economic Forum, um, and it brings in the most powerful. Uh, chief executive officers politicians leaders of of um, you know the arts and literary world uh, brings in leaders across the globe um, and it is overwhelmingly male this past year it was I believe a what well, was certainly a record and I think it was female. I mean, it is, there's like never a line in the ladies room, which is the only place I've ever been in the world. No line in the ladies room. Um, uh, And it makes a difference because, you know, these are, this is a place where powerful people from around the world are meeting one another and making connections and they're going to work together and they're going to be bringing each other into Boardrooms and into decision making and into making huge decisions that impact impact all of us, uh, and the women simply are not represented. And the few women who are there, who I who I interviewed about this very topic, said, you know, they are often not heard. Um, I went to one. Um, there was a panel last year where it was it was like the one panel that talked about female leadership, and you know, Christine Lagarde was there, who runs the IMF, one of the most powerful, amazing women in the world. Um, The other women on the panel were equally, you know, there were prime ministers, there were leading politicians on this panel. And uh, when I went to the panel, as few women as there are at Davos, I think every one of them was in that room, and almost no men. Like the men just simply didn't care. It wasn't their issue, which was astonishing to me. But I will say on the plus side that there, first of all, there's a recognition about this. So I think things are slowly changing. And secondly, we're now in this Me Too global movement. Um, ever since last fall, when the allegations first surfaced in uh, The New York Times and The New Yorker about Harvey Weinstein, the song producer, um, and his long, long, long history of alleged uh, sexual harassment and assault, um, and that really kicked off globally it just unleashed this frustration that women have. Um, lots and lots of men now have been toppled by allegations of sexual uh, sexual harassment and assault. But I think what, what we need to understand about the Me Too moment is that it's not just about the worst of the sexual predators. And everyone needs to understand this, and too many men still don't get this. The reason that this movement exploded, it's not because every woman has been sexually assaulted at work. But it is because every woman knows what it feels like to be marginalized, to be disrespected, to be ignored. And that's this pent up frustration that is really, really powering this movement. I think that that's a positive because it puts all of those issues, not just the harassment, but the marginalization, the underpayment, the being overlooked, not given opportunities puts all of those issues on the table, makes them discussable, and makes these issues front and center for men as well as for women. And that is also the point of win-win, is to put those issues out there on the table to tell the men, who so as we said, half of men aren't even aware what the issues are. So like, here's what the issues are. And by the way, here are ways that we can work together to solve the problem. 106 to 108,
1: and you're very welcome back to Talking Books. I'm Susan Cahill. It's lovely to have your company this evening. Well, on tonight's show, I'm talking with American journalist, writer, and editor Joanne Lipman, whose latest book, Win Win: When Business Works for Women, It Works for Everyone, has just been published by John Murray. Where Joanne argues, men tend to overrate themselves in performance reviews, while women underrate themselves. Women also tend to give credit to their team, while men take personal credit for their team's work. I asked you, Anne, a better trip to Iceland, home to the only penis museum in the world, and why it is that despite their hyper-masculine culture, that Iceland measures up to be one of the best places in the world to be a woman. Yes, so
0: I went. I spent some time in Iceland. The reason is because the World Economic Forum, which does ranks countries, um, has named... Iceland number one in the world for gender equality for the past decade. And I went there to see what does that feel like, right? I was really fascinated. But it turns out it's actually no accident that it became number one after 2008. So 2008, of course, was the global economic meltdown. Uh, The country that was hit probably the hardest in the entire world was Iceland. And the reason is that Iceland, which is an incredibly macho country, it's a nation of fishermen and farmers. And it's super macho. They're really proud of their Viking heritage. You know, any gift shop you go into in Iceland, they got axes. (laughs) The Church of Iceland has this sphere. It's in the middle of Reykjavik. It's the most phallic building I think I've ever seen. (laughs) It has a penis museum which I write about in the book. It's crazy, right, how macho this country is. And what happened was, in the years leading up to 2008, um, Iceland, these farmers and fishermen became bankers. They turned themselves into bankers and it attracted all sorts of international money. And they really didn't understand the international financial system. Um, they would call themselves, even the president of the country, they called themselves the... the um, Uh, business Vikings, right? They really, really loved how aggressive it was. Uh, And when things crashed everywhere in the world, they crashed worse in Iceland. So whereas in the United States after the crash, pretty much nobody went to jail. Uh, Very few people lost their jobs. But in Iceland, first of all, there's three major banks in Iceland. Uh, All three CEOs were fired. They were imprisoned. The government was toppled. And the male-led government was replaced by a female-led government, and one of the first things she did was she brought in a couple of gender studies professors from the University of Iceland to study and prepare a report on exactly why the company had such a severe financial crash. And the final report, which I read, can be summed up in basically one word, which is Excess of testosterone. I mean, they literally found that it was the macho culture that led to too much risk-taking. So, it's, so the country now has a female prime minister, and she led basically sort of a feminization of the entire country, which included cracking down on things like pornography. So that was... Um, The reason why suddenly, you know, it leapfrogged, Iceland leapfrogged other countries to be number one in gender equality. A couple of the other things, you know, they have a very, very high educational level for women as well as men, uh, but they also have one of the most generous parental leave policies in the world. It's nine months. You get three months for one partner, three months for the second partner, and then three months for whichever of the two partners uh, wants to, to take it. Um, and they also have subsidized childcare. So I met professional women a- in Iceland who had three, four, five kids because they could, uh, which is something that you certainly don't see in the United States. The-, the-, the big difference, though, I have to say, is when I went to Iceland, the men as well as the women were just as likely to complain about the world economic ranking and just to- and to say we are still not equal, we still have a wage gap. And, um, by the way, we think the World Economic Forum is wrong. <laughs> and And if we are number one, it just shows you uh, what a terrible state the world is in. Uh, so they both men and women believe that. and the other the biggest difference, I think, was this otherworldly experience of uh, feeling that I had when I sat down with these very big, burly macho fishermen and farmers, and you would sit down with them, and they would basically like bang the table and say things like, of course, I am a feminist, right? It was the men as well as the women identified themselves as feminists in a way that is completely depoliticized. Here in the United States, that is such a loaded word, whereas in Iceland, it's basically like saying, of course, I'm human, right? There's no connotations around it.
1: Joanne, you touch on the nature of mentoring in the workplace and you've some very troubling research to suggest that men are somewhat reluctant to go into one-to-one meetings with junior women or to be in a kind of environment where they're mentoring young women. And that's very um, upsetting because when I look back on the last 25 years in the workplace, some of the best mentoring I got was from men and men who encouraged me and brought me up through the ranks. And now given all of the, you know, the well, in the context of the Me Too campaign, you can understand why some men are reluctant or concerned or anxious because it is such a loaded environment now and men are walking on eggshells.
0: That's exactly right. And I, I do, uh, that is the my concern about the Me Too movement is if we really have to guard against that outcome, the outcome in which men say, well, geez, I'm afraid I'll be uh, accused of something, so I'm never going to talk to a woman. I'm not going to hire a woman. I'm certainly not going to mentor a woman. But I have to say, I've heard a lot of men saying that. I've seen very few um, actual incidents of that happening, and I think it's a cop-out when men say that. To be honest, there are so many other ways to interact with women in a productive way, It doesn't have to be going out drinking at night, for example. Um, uh, And I use the example in Win-Win of my own mentors. All of my mentors were men. And they came up with all sorts of ways. And I, I have to say, I didn't even think about this until I started writing the book. Then I realized how fortunate I was and how smart these guys were in the ways that they mentored me, because it's really important to create a bond and to create a social fabric, a social relationship in, in work. That's part of mentoring. Um, and, uh, you know, historically, men would go out golfing or go out drinking, whatever. Um, and, but what my own male mentors did, when I was a very, very young reporter, before I even met my husband, I had a wonderful male boss, and he would say to me, he would say, you know, my wife and I would like to take you in a date out to dinner. why don't you find yourself a date and my wife and I'll take you guys to dinner. Right. So it was, it was not one-on-one, um, but it was very social and it was a great way to kind of have a, a bonding moment. Um, subsequently, uh, I got married and had my kids and I had a wonderful, wonderful male, a mentor and he would arrange family outings. We would take the kids to the movies or we would get together for, you know, in the daytime for, for, you know, have the kids play together. um, go to the pool together, whatever. And, and so it wasn't, it was, it was, um, very much, you know, there was, there there was, it it was very comfortable. Um, and it was, and it was very social and you create a really great social bond. And by the way, you know, here we are years later and all of those men became my friends. They're now, you know, family friends. Um, so there are plenty of ways to be able to mentor women, uh, that don't have to do with drinking and carousing. And the other thing that I do say to men is, um, your female colleagues are not looking at you as a potential sexual predator, right? Women, they don't want this awkwardness any more than men do. Um, they really want to have the ease. You know, the 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 biggest benefit when you talk to people about their careers and their jobs, those who are happy at work, it's because it's not just the work itself, it's the people, right? It's this social situation. They enjoy the people they work with. And we certainly don't want to want to crush that.
1: And ultimately, Joanne, uh, rights for women and parity for women means um, also for men.
0: Absolutely. I mean, we need this for men as well as for women, without question. And it makes all of us uh, more successful, right? Everyone is more successful when, when we have these mixed groups. There was a really interesting study